Father, we are, are kept by the truth that you love us, that you are for us. In the midst of, of, of good times and bad, Father, we are sustained by the, by the truth, the amazing truth that we matter deeply to you. And Father, as we have sung that this morning, let us now see that in the words of Job in the midst of his suffering and trial, coming to the conclusion that he matters to you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good to have you with us this morning, church family and guests. We're honored that you are here with us as well for our online services this morning. I was doing some study this past week and uh, started thinking uh, about something that is uniquely of our time, and that is taking a selfie. I want you to look around your house right now and determine which of those present are those most guilty of taking selfies. Uh, do that right now, and then you can ridicule them and make fun of them for doing so. Do you know, according to Google statistics, there are 93 million selfies taken a day in our world, 93 million. And that same study showed that one-third of the photos taken by those aged 18 to 24 are selfies, one-third. Now, the natural conclusion that uh, one might reach in thinking about that is that we must see in 18 to 24-year-olds the most self-absorbed generation in American history. But what if I told you that that was not the case? See, there is a growing substantial body of evidence that shows that, that habitual selfie-taking, doing it more than the norm, taking selfies in bulk, are, is actually driven by a lack of self-worth. In fact, scientists are in a little bit of disagreement regarding exactly what role insecurity plays. There are those who believe that self-esteem is diminished by selfie-taking because of the comparisons they invite, and that causes the one taking the selfie to take more and more and more in an attempt to measure up. And then there are those who believe that insecure people take selfies, seeking a self-esteem boost from the likes and comments of others. But what they are in agreement on is that, that a lack of self-esteem, a lack of self-worth is ultimately what drives taking selfies above and beyond the norm. Now, I want you to think about someone who feels undervalued, someone who feels unimportant, someone who is desperately wanting to matter to someone, and how that person might play out their relationship with God? What might a relationship with God look like in the life of someone who suffers from basic esteem? It's not impossible to imagine that the validation that that person seeks from others would also play a key role in, in what they seek from God, seeking validation from Him. And that validation, in all likelihood, would look very much like it does in the validation they seek from others. It would look like a need for approval. 
As a matter of fact, it would look very much like how Job's friends viewed the dynamics of a relationship with God. God rewards good behavior. He approves of good behavior, and He punishes, He disapproves of bad behavior. But now, but now track with me. How might a pandemic play out in the mind of someone who claims a relationship with God that is colored by low self-esteem? What happens in the brain of someone like that when the world begins to unravel? It's likely they cry out to God and ask Him to make things better and to keep them safe and to keep them healthy and to keep them gainfully employed. But if those things don't happen, what happens in the mind of the person who is in, in a relationship with God for the approval of God in their life? It, it, it's likely it'll ultimately boil down to two choices. They will conclude that either God is a myth and so what they do doesn't matter, or that God is real and they don't matter. If you would please find Job 22 in your copies of God's Word. Today, we are in the third cycle of Job and his friends discussing his situation, and it's important to see that at this point the gloves have finally, fully, and completely come off. There's no pretense anymore of trying to preserve one another's feelings. Job's friends are offering advice based on, based on this faulty belief that God operates in essence as a karma cop who gives people what they deserve, both good and bad. And Job is pushing back on that, saying God's not like that at all. In fact, my situation reflects the fact that God is not like that at all. There is nothing in my life that would warrant a kind of negative reaction from God. So that by the time we get to this section, Job and his friends are just really going at one another. And his friends in our section today are essentially saying to Job, stop talking to God about this. Stop asking him for some kind of explanation for what is going on because Job, you don't matter to him. And ultimately they are arguing, none of us do. They have a conception of God that leads them to conclude that no one matters to God. You see that in Eliphaz's opening salvo in verses 2 and 3 of Job 22. He says, can a man be profitable to God? Can God get anything out of this relationship at all? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Essentially, Eliphaz is saying that God is detached and God is, is distant and He's too busy doing God things for Job and his plight or anyone's plight to matter. God doing good doesn't add to God's goodness and our being wise doesn't add to God's wisdom, which is what the second part of verse 2 actually means. And He is completely ambivalent when we are good or bad. Our actions just simply kick in a car like cause and effect in the nature of God. We get what we get, and we really don't matter to Him at 
all. And from here, Eliphaz goes on in chapter 22 to accuse Job of sins he hasn't committed because clearly there's got to be something going on in Job's life. His framework for understanding God demands that there be something wrong with Job's life for him to be experiencing what he is experiencing. And Job, in chapter 23, says that's not the case at all. And then after he speaks... A second of the friends, Bildad, hops on the bandwagon, and he doubles down on how little we matter to a distant and detached God. But here's the deal. If you didn't understand where, where Bildad was coming from, you might think that his opening words are, are really not so bad at all. Go to chapter 25 of the book of Job and look at verses 2 and 3. Job 25, 2 and 3. Here's, here's what he says. He says, dominion and fear with God. He makes his peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? I mean, you can turn a praise song into that. There's nothing wrong with that until you realize where it's coming from because he goes on to say this in, in verse 4. How then can a man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. He's so other that we really, we don't matter to him. And then in case you missed it, he says this in verse 6, how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. God is so other that you matter as little to him as a worm or a maggot matters to you. Those who are Marvel movie fans might recognize this more a description of Loki in the Avengers movies than the, than the true sovereign God. In the first Avengers movie, uh, Nick Fury uh, says to Loki, why do you have a quarrel with us? And Loki says, you don't matter to me at all. In fact, humans are ants, and ants have no quarrel with the boot. They're nothing to him. This is the description of the holy God that Bildad is operating under. It's one thing to hear that kind of dismissive detachment from a villain in a fictional movie, but Bildad is describing the sovereign holy God. In this way, this is really who he believes God is. So Eliphaz and Bildad look at Job and his suffering and his desperation to talk to God about it and tell Job he just needs to be quiet because he doesn't matter. It's little wonder that Job declares how little help his friends have been to him when he says this in verses 2 and 3 of Job 26, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. You've been no help to me at all. Now, clearly his friends are wrong. We do matter to God. Deeply, we matter to God. In fact, Scripture is replete to the point of saturation with declarations of how much we individually matter to God. The Everest of those declarations is when the psalmist proclaims that the precious thoughts of God towards us are so innumerable that you would have a better chance of counting every grain of sand on every beach and in every desert in the world than you would in numbering the good thoughts of God towards us. We matter to God. Scripture screams it at us. But we may 
need help understanding why we matter to God. Almost everyone listening to my voice right now has been deeply impacted by the idea of American exceptionalism. That's the belief grained, ingrained in our country that our history is unique and our mission is unique and therefore we are superior to every nation that has ever lived in the history of the world. And it, it's not been all bad. It is that kind of belief in American exceptionalism that has made us back-to-back -back World War champs and helped us put a man on the moon. But it is also filtered down into our individual self-perception. We have come to believe that we matter to God, that I matter to God because I am. I am, and therefore, I matter to God. We're special. We're unique. The world revolves around us. God revolves around us. So we want sermons that affirm our exceptionalism and we read the Bible with a focus on ourselves and we worship because of how it makes, it, it makes us feel, either because it reminds us of the good old days or because it reminds us of how evolved we have become. So the natural expectation for most listening to my voice right now is for the remainder of this sermon to focus on what's so special about me that makes me matter to God. Instead, I'm going to do what Job does, because this idea is also replete in Scripture to the point of saturation. Job is going to say, I matter, you matter, we all matter to God, but it's not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And Job actually will show us that in two ways. First, he shows us that you matter to God because God is good. God is good. Job's words in chapter 23 and 24 are rooted in the idea of, of finding out where God is holding court. Remember a few weeks ago I said that, that it's almost as if in Job's world he's, he's building a, a legal argument where he wants to argue the case for his innocence before God. And so he, he asks, where is God holding court so that I can appear before him and argue my case? You see that in 23, uh, Job chapter 23, verse 2, where he says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat, his, his judgment seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I, I know that he would answer me and understand, he would, and, and understand what he would say to me. Now, remember, Job has been told by his friends that even if he could come before God, it wouldn't matter. Because he doesn't matter to God. God is great, and, and, and Job is, is a worm. God is cold and impersonal, and Job is a maggot. But Joseph, Job believes just the opposite. He knows just the opposite. He knows that God is good, and he is therefore not distant and detached, but present and personal and has a purpose for him. Look at verse 6 of 23. Would he contend with me in his greatness? Would he just remain distant from me and disconnected? No, he says, he would pay attention to me. 
Job knows he matters because God is personal and would listen to him. He would pay attention to him. Not because Job isn't, in light of God's greatness, a worm or a maggot. In, 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 in comparison, he is. He never actually argues that. But God has granted value to him. And thus, he matters to God. God will choose in his otherness to pay attention to someone, to anyone who calls out to him. And then watch what he does in verse 10 of chapter 23. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Now, back in in Job 22, if you want to read this later, Eliphaz has argued that God was so distant and detached that he's essentially hidden behind a veil and that shields him from any personal awareness at all of man's actions. But Job instead has argued that God knows his every step. He's not just personal, Job has said. He's present and he's engaged and he knows what is going on in my life. And then he says this in verse 14 of chapter 23. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. As painful as Job's life was, he knew that God had a purpose for it. Again, never argues that any differently at all. He is just desperate to want to find out why all of this was going on. He never once doubts that there is a purpose behind God's actions towards him. This is a far different conception of God than the conception held by Job's friends. Job doesn't believe God is distant and detached. He believes that God is personal and present and purposeful. God is good when He doesn't have to be towards people like us. And because God is good, we matter to God. This is so vitally important to remember when we are suffering. We've already talked about the natural inclination to ask God why when we were in the midst of a trial just a few weeks ago. But we need to understand that more often than not, we may never know why. Think about it. We may never know why. Job never finds out why God brought the season of trial and suffering into his life. We may never know, despite people who in a very self-assured way are telling us exactly why this is going on. We may never know why this pandemic hit or why we got our diagnosis or why our friends abandoned us or why our marriage ended. We may never know. And if you never know, Especially if you are changed, chained to the performance-based approval religion that low self-esteem drives, as we said earlier, you may decide that God's a myth and what you do doesn't matter or that God is real and you don't matter. But if you do matter, and you matter not because of who you are but because of who God is, then you can endure with the sure hope that God hasn't left you. God is not a sadist. God is personal and present and purposeful. He is good, and because He is good, you matter. But that's not where Job stops. Job also shows us that we matter because God is great. 
God is great. Job 24 is a continuation of Job's remarks that he starts in chapter 23. Chapter 23, Job cries out for God to answer him so he can get some answer for his situation. But in Job 24, he shifts and he cries out for God so that he can get some answers as to why wicked people seem to have a more peaceful life than he has. It's as if he's considering his life and say, I want to know why I'm so afflicted. And then he starts looking around at his three bozo friends. And and essentially, he's just saying, well, why is their life so good? He lists all the ways that, that wicked people seem to have it made. But then he says this at the beginning of verse 22 in Job 24. He says, yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He, he gives them security, and they are supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. He's, he's, he's not let them slip his notice. They are exalted for a little while. Everything goes well for a while, and then they are gone. They are exalted a little while, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? What is he doing? He's remembering that God is so actively superintending this world, all of it, that the actions of man don't go unnoticed to him. He's not distant and detached. He is ruling personally and purposefully in in a present way over this world. God remains in control of human destiny. But then he expands that idea of God's superintendence of the world in a beautiful declaration of the greatness and the majesty of God. Really, it's the high point of anything that Job says in the entire book. Look at verse 5 of Job 26. The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol, the place of the dead, is shaken, is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. He's saying God is everywhere. It's a reflection of of Psalm 139, where can I go to flee from the presence of God? He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in thick clouds, and, and the cloud is not split open under them. He's observed clouds, and it seems that they float in the air, and yet rain, which, which is heavy, and water, which has weight, fall from them. He doesn't understand how that works. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it a cloud. He brings a cloud in front of the moon and hides He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at His rebuke. By His power, He stilled the sea. By His understanding, He shattered Rahab. By His his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. He's saying God is unbelievably powerful. And and God is unbelievably majestic. And then he says this, all of these great things, behold, are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. We, We see these things that we don't understand, and it's but a whisper of God's power. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? All of these amazing feats of God's power in rule are just whispers of his might. God is great. And in acknowledging that, Job is concluding 
He matters. How so? Reflect with me on how Job got here in the first place. He was seen by God as being upright more than all the men in the earth. And Satan comes and says, well, of course, of course he's upright. You're blessing him. If I take away his blessing, he won't worship you. And he, he takes away the blessing of God. And yet Job does worship God. He says, well, you haven't touched his skin. Make him sick. Then he won't worship you. And he takes away his health. And Job gets sick, painfully, horrifyingly sick. And still, he worships God. A God who is so great that he's everywhere. A God who is so great that the loudest clap of thunder that you've ever heard is is on the mere outskirts of his power. We're just catching glimpses of the power of God. He is great. And you matter because you, who would otherwise be a worm or a maggot, have been given the capacity by God to exalt his greatness. You matter because you uniquely can glorify that God. Eliphaz has argued, what what does our good add to him? And we've already seen, we already know how our good adds to him. When we worship him in spite of, when we worship him because ultimately of who he is, we are exalting and we we are trumpeting the goodness of God. We matter because God is great and he's given us the capacity to glorify him and no other being in all of creation have the unique capacity to glorify God that we do. That is why we matter. Now, to be sure, Job's not rock solid in these convictions. Pain will do that to people. And when he has clown friends telling him over and over again that he doesn't really matter with God and so just deal with life, he can sure lose sight of the truth of the matter. And Job does. He does at times lose sight of the fact that he matters to God But if you believe you matter to God because you are uniquely special, that there's something different inherent in you that has has made you worthy of God's attention, then life will kick that out of you at some point. You'll experience trial and heartache and loss and suffering. And in that moment, there will be nothing you can point to in your life that would affirm that you're inherently special to anyone much less a God who, who we just but glimpse an outskirt of his power. But if you understand that your significance is derived, that you have a derived significance, that you matter because God has deemed that you matter out of his goodness, and that you, because you matter, can give in a unique way unbelievable eternity ringing praise to a God who is great, when those trials come, you'll remember that. You'll remember that you matter because of who He is. You'll remember that He is personal and present and purposeful and therefore good and that He rules and reigns and is therefore great and gives you the capacity to glorify Him. And because of who He is, you will remember that you matter and you 
can endure. You matter deeply to God. That is something that you are questioning, either because of what we're going through right now in our world or because of something specific to your life. We'd love to talk to you about it. We would encourage you, if you have any questions or, or just want to reach out and talk to someone, to, to email justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. And we will get back with you as soon as we possibly can. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that the truth that I matter to you has nothing to do with me. Because I would have already lost the ability to matter to you on my own today. But I, along with every other human who's ever lived, matter to you because you have given us, out of your goodness, the capacity to engage you and to glory in your greatness. And so because of that, Father, you are personal and you are present and engaged in our lives. And you have a purpose for everything. There's nothing random. There is nothing that occurs in our life that is outside of your sovereign rule. And so if we find ourselves in the midst of a trial and difficulty, help us, Father, to, to hang tightly onto that truth that Job lost sight of time to time, that we, in the midst of all of this, can say, though he slay me, yet will I praise him just because of who he is. It's worth it. Help us to realize that whatever is happening in life, that it is but a flash and then there is eternity. So the worst thing that could happen to us in life is not that we die. It's that we would fail to live with an awareness that you, out of your goodness and out of your greatness, you have made us matter to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.